will be in Romans 4 this morning. To say that the Jews and the Gentiles disliked each other would be the understatement of the century. It would be, uh, maybe we'll take a little bit of a smaller step back, it would be kind of like saying the Cowboys and the Eagles dislike each other. And that's one thing to know just kind of in generality, but if you know some specifics, it takes on a whole new picture. So as somebody unbiased like myself, I can give you a few details that will help make that clear. You see, Philly fans have a habit of throwing batteries and snowballs. Meanwhile, Dallas fans are peaceful, likable, gentle folk. Okay, so I'm not biased, but just so you know, not biased doesn't necessarily mean wrong. The Jews and Gentiles also, if you've been in church very long at all, you know already there's a strong dislike that they had for one another. But before we get into Romans 4, I think it would be helpful if we spelled out a little bit of just why this hatred was so deep so that we can maybe see with some fresher eyes what Paul says. Um, So the Jews hated the Gentiles. And there's a lot of reasons for this. I'm going to give you a couple things to just kind of lodge in in your mind. Uh, One of them is in the year 168 BC, there was a king named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he ruled his empire and he wanted to make things a little bit easier. And there was this problem group of people, the Jews. They didn't seem to go along with what was wanted. And so he invaded Jerusalem went into the temple and thought he would fix all of this pretty quickly. Once he got into the temple, he set up a statue. And if you know your Ten Commandments, you know one of the commandments is not to make an image in the temple. Well, not only did he make an image, he made an image in the form of Zeus. And if that wasn't bad enough, he then waltzed up to the altar and offered as a sacrifice a pig on it. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that pigs are unclean. So as you can imagine, this erupted in a revolt from the Jewish people, one that never quite fizzled out. And so there was this deep hatred, this deep suspicion, this deep dislike that the Jews had for the Gentiles. And on top of all of this, the Gentiles worshipped some pretty bad gods. They were gods that looked a lot like, surprise, surprise, the Gentiles. They were gods who got angry really quickly. They were gods who were greedy. They were gods who, were, who stole. They were gods who raped people and took things that weren't theirs. They were a mess, and it would be easy for the Jews to look at them and say, well, no wonder the Gentiles act the way they do. Look who they worship. And in turn, the Gentiles also did not like the Jews. They viewed them as isolationist and uncooperative. The Gentiles knew, and the Jews knew, that in the recent history, there'd been lots of fighting constantly among the different people groups in the region, and there was an attempt to bring peace. And to bring peace always requires some sacrifice of individual things for the greater good. And so the Gentiles would look at the Jews and say, why can't you guys just do what everybody else is doing, cooperate 
work together, let's have peace. But instead of doing that, you guys want to keep doing your own thing. And not only did they do this, but the Jews also ate strange, or they wouldn't eat foods that everybody else was eating. And this might sound like not a big deal, like if you throw a party and a vegetarian comes over and now you have to redo your whole meal plan. It was a bigger deal than that. Because these festivals were times that were supposed to bring unity. As different people who used to be fighting with one another would come together, they would now sit around a table and share a meal. But instead of bringing unity, these festivals now highlighted division because the Jews wouldn't participate. And so the Jews saw the Gentiles as deeply lawless. And the Gentiles saw the Jews as uncooperative, unhelpful, extreme, and isolationist. And the easy line that was drawn in the sand was circumcision. Circumcision kind of functioned as a catch-all for whether you followed the law or didn't follow the law. It stood for if you were part of God's people, if you were Jewish, if you kept the commandments of Moses, the tradition of those who'd gone before them, if you would followed in the footsteps of those who had suffered for the faith. And so when Paul brings up, as he does in Romans 3, where we were a couple weeks ago, that the uncircumcised would be justified, or as he says in chapter 2, when he talks about the true Jew being the one who is not circumcised in the flesh, but in the heart, you wouldn't be surprised when people start getting a little bit antsy. And Paul feels this. There's this deep hatred and mistrust between these two groups, and Paul seems to be saying something that is really dangerous and that is abandoning Moses and God. And so he asks their question for them. At the end of chapter 3, where we stopped a couple weeks ago, he asks, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? When we say that the uncircumcised are justified, are we overthrowing the law? And Paul says, by no means. Actually, what we are doing is upholding the law. Now, this would sound utterly nonsensical. How can that be? And so in chapter 4, Paul is going to go back to the sources, back before the law to Abraham to show how it is that when talking about justification apart from circumcision, he's not overthrowing the law, but actually upholding it. And by the way, Abraham here in chapter 4 isn't merely an example. It's not that Paul could have just gone to any Old Testament saint and proved this. Paul is going before the law and showing that what was true before the law must continue to be true after the giving of the law. So hopefully that kind of helps set our scene uh, for why Paul is doing what he's doing in Romans 4. He is working to uh, guard against the accusation that he is overturning everything that had come before. So Romans chapter 4, verse 1, hopefully you're there. Paul says, What then shall we say was gained... By Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, 
His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the circumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Two big points for you this morning is kind of the overarching plan is I've got two points and then two mirror applications. Um, and depending on where you sit in relation to Paul, these might sound like two encouragements or they might sound like two corrections. Um, and I'll, I'll leave that kind of for us to figure out exactly how that lands on you. So two points two either encouragements or corrections. The, the first one is this. While uncircumcised, Abraham was Rightified. While uncircumcised, Abraham was rightified. That's not a typo for ratified, as if Paul is a politician attempting to amend the Constitution. It is a word that I made, well, actually, my wife made up. Um, I had a different word that I thought worked, and she told me there's a better way to do this, and I think she's right. So we went with rightified. Um, the reason that I've done that is because there's some things going on here in Romans 4 that are a little bit difficult for us to catch if we don't get a little bit of help. So there's a couple pairs of words that show up over and over and over in Romans 4. One of the pairs is justification or justify and righteousness. And the other pair is believe and faith. Now, if you hear me say both of those words, or if you see both of those words in your Bible, they don't seem to have anything in common with each other. But that's not true in the original. In Greek, they share a root, and they belong tightly together. Um, so it might be kind of like this. If I told you that the runner runs, you would say, of course he does. Because if the runner doesn't run, then he's not a, a runner. In order for a runner to be a runner, he has to run. You can see that similarity there in the root of it. And so uh, here on the screen, you've got Romans 4. This is verse 5, where I, I want to show you this. Um, so I've highlighted a couple of the words together uh, in similar colors so you can see what's going on here. So Paul says, to the one who does not work but believes, or we might say faiths, to the one who does not work but believes or faiths in him who justifies, or what I've said here, rightifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as right or righteousness. 
And so when Paul says the one who faiths in God, that is the God who is right, his faith is right, you would say, of course. Of course it's right to trust in the God who is right. You can see that there in the words. And so um, Romans 4, over and over and over, you'll see these kind of roots show up. And so just for you to know as you continue reading and studying, uh, in Romans 4, you'll see the word justify two times and righteousness six times. But actually that root there, they, they belong together. There's eight times that that shows up. And you'll see the word faith four times, the word believed three times, but those share a similarity. And so the, there's a repetition pattern here that's hard for you to see that I want to point out. And that's why I'm using the language of rightified. Now, um, Paul, remember, is arguing that he hasn't overturned the law by this faith, but that he's actually upholding the law. Paul hears that accusation and here he responds. And so in verse 3, Paul says, what do we know about Abraham? Well, he says, we know Abraham was rightified. He was made right. He was justified. Everybody agrees on that point. But the point that Abraham, that Paul needs us to see beyond that is when Abraham was rightified. And so look down at verse 10. When does this happen, Paul asks. Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before. Now, this means, and here, here's where things get good. If Abraham was made right before circumcision, then circumcision, by definition, can't be the making right thing. You see that? If he's made right before he's circumcised, then it cannot be circumcision that makes him right. Well, how then was he made right? Was he rightified? Well, there's a, a pretty simple logic here. God is faithful. Right? You'll see these words, faith and righteousness, show up over and over here in Romans 4 and in the larger context. God is faithful, so for someone to faith in God or believe in God would be right. Right? To not believe, to have faith in the faithful God would be wrong. And so it is right to do that. And God counts the one who has faith, trust, belief in him. He counts that as rightness, as righteousness. He makes them right. At the root, the way one is set right is not by working, is not by circumcision, is not by keeping festivals and laws and dietary restrictions and sacrifices, the way that one is set right before God is by believing in the setting right one. That's what Abraham did even before the law. And so faith, Paul says, doesn't overthrow the law. It actually upholds it. So why circumcision? Doesn't that now just seem like a needless detour on the long journey we're on? Well, verse 11 Paul says circumcision came as a sign and as a seal. It's a sign that shows God and Abraham have entered into a covenant together. Something's different. 
there is promise and obligation here. There is a covenant that has happened, and circumcision is a sign that that's there, and it's also a seat. Right? So circumcision points to and permanentizes the covenant that God and Abraham are in. And the problem comes when people take the sign as the cause. See that? To take circumcision as the cause for someone being right is to turn all this on its head. It's not the cause, it's the sign and it's the seal. And so all of this Paul is using to show us that he's not actually overthrowing the law because what was true of Abraham can't then be nullified or made nothing by what comes after. And so Paul was made right without being circumcised. Now here's the second thing that I want you to notice. In all of this, Paul isn't doing theological heavy lifting because he wants to show off how smart he is. Right? He's not doing theology just for theology's sake, but Paul is on the way somewhere. So the second thing I want you to notice is that the Gentiles of faith are children of Abraham. Now remember, Jews and Gentiles have a long, thick, painful history with one another. And so for Paul to say that Gentiles of faith are children of Abraham, not just tolerated, not just allowed to kind of coexist, but belonging in the same family, under the same roof, sharing the same meal, sharing one another's joys and sorrows would be a shocking thing to say. And so Paul is leveraging this truth that Abraham was made right before circumcision to show God's larger design that Jew and Gentile are together at last. So look at verses 11 and 12 with me. So verse 11, Paul says he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And then look at this. The purpose, why is all of this happened? The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. To make him the father of the Gentiles as well. You see that there in verses 11 and 12 and 9, he asks this leading question as well. He says, is this blessing, remember the quote he has from David about blessing coming to the one who's counted righteous apart from works. Paul says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or is it also for the uncircumcised? And Paul's answer is, it's also for the uncircumcised because Abraham himself was uncircumcised when he received the blessing. I want to help you see, help us see, that this isn't some random detour that Paul is taking here in Romans 4, but that this is at work all through Romans. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to flip around a little bit in Romans. I want to highlight some things for you. So in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul makes the bold claim that there are Gentiles, Gentiles, who have the law written on their heart. The thing that Jeremiah said God would do for his people, Paul says there's Gentiles who have that done for them. In chapter 3, 28 and 29, Paul says that since we are justified apart from works of the law, God is also 
the God of the Gentiles. Jew and Gentile together. In chapter 4, 16, Paul says that the promise is not just to those who have the law, is not just to the Jews, but also to those who have Abraham's faith. And in chapter 5, Paul says that just as Adam's sin plunged everybody into death, Jew and Gentile alike, so Jesus' obedience brings life to Jew and to Gentile, to all. Chapters 9 and 11, Paul takes these twin nations, Jew and Gentile, and he brings them fittingly together. And by the time you get to the end of Romans in chapter 15, 24, this all spills over into kind of a missionary impulse that Paul says, if in fact God is working together this one family for all the earth, Jew and Gentile together, then the gospel needs to go forth. And he says he writes this letter to the Romans so that he can see them on his way to Spain, and he hopes they will spur him on, give him the things he needs so that he can continue going to the ends of the earth with this good news. The idea of Jew and Gentile together is not something that just pops up out of place in Romans 4, but is woven all through the book of Romans. And if that's not enough, Remember what it is that God promised Abraham, who we're talking about, when God first showed up to him when his name wasn't Abraham, but was Abram. In Genesis 12, God promised them that he would be a blessing to who? All the families of the earth. Paul says this faith thing, not this circumcision that justifies us, that makes us right, doesn't overthrow the law, but has been at work since the very beginning. This has been God's plan all along, and to change the plan, to make the sign the cause, to make circumcision the cause, is to overthrow God's plan and undo what has been at work since the very beginning. You see, sin didn't just disrupt our relationship with God, it also disrupted the relationship of people with each other. Around Christmas time, we sing a song that goes, he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Well, the New City Catechism has a question and answer this way. By the way, parents who have young children, the New City Catechism is a really helpful resource. It's got songs that go along with the questions and answers. Um, we've loved it ourselves. But there's a question and answer that goes this way. What else does Christ's death redeem? And the answer Every part of fallen creation. Abraham is the father, not just of the circumcised, those who have the law, those who have Moses, those who have the patriarchs and the promises, but Abraham, Paul says, is also the father of the uncircumcised. That would be the Gentiles. He indeed, as the song goes, has many and so the promise that was made to Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the stars of the heavens, that his descendants would outnumber the sand on the seashore, finally gets fulfilled in Jesus as this family that was once split is now brought back together through faith rather than circumcision. So while uncircumcised, Abraham was rightified. He was made right. And this means Gentiles of faith are children of Abraham.
So what about us? What do we do here? Well, I have two points for you that mirror these two as well. We are to be not law-keeping people, but believing people. And again here, we're talking about causes and signs. And so what are some gauges? I'll ask you this to think a little bit, and then I'll give you some ideas of pointers on where I think you might do some consideration. What are some gauges that you have that might compare to circumcision for the Jew? What are law-keeping things that, that we do? What are things that we uh, can slip into finding as causes for our being made right rather than as outflows of them? Do you find yourself thinking about your consistent Bible reading as something that makes you feel good about where you're at? Or maybe church attendance. Or giving generously. Or having a tight rein on your tongue. Right? None of these, good as they are, are a cause. You get yourself into some pretty difficult spots if you start flipping signs and causes. Now, this means, here's some really good news. Um, this means for anybody who's in this room or for people who you know who might be characterized as, as the Gentiles would have been as lawless, that would be people who don't do the, the things that we tend to view as good religious things, that means those people cannot be too far or too messy. Right? I mean, if in Romans 4, God is bringing together Jew and Gentile, is there a messier relationship than that? I don't, I don't know. Um, so good news for you if you're in this and, and you're not a Christian. You can't be too messy, too messed up, too distant from this God who sent his son to take on flesh to die for your sins. The call for you is to come. Now, church, this, I think, brings about a warning for us. If God is in the business of bringing Jews and Gentiles together, then we need to be really careful how we think of people that might be easily thought of as enemies. How do we think of people who fall into different positions than us, who we would maybe view as far away, as a Gentile-like? You see, because it is really easy for us to start erecting walls up and pushing out people and thinking of them as enemies, as too far, as too distant, as too stubborn, as too rebellious, as too wrong, that when God does the wonderful things that God tends to do and brings about changes in people's hearts, 
that we can't then be in a position to rejoice. This is the problem that Paul's hearers had in, in Romans. They heard Paul start talking about this wonderful thing that God was doing in the hearts of Gentiles, and they said, whoa, 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 you're overturning the law. And Paul has to say, far from it. We're actually doing the whole thing that the law said was going to be happening. And we can see God do wonderful, glorious things and end up looking like the older brother in Jesus' parable. Jesus, they find mercy, and we go to the corner and pout because they didn't get cleaned up first. They didn't stick around through the heat of the day and endure the shine, and they get the same blessing that we do. As if, right, as if we're so deserving and right to receive what we've received, we, we forget that the blessing is not something we've worked for, but it's something that's given to us. And if it's something that's given to us, who are we to be frustrated when it's then given to another? And so, church, I, I want you to feel this. It is easy. It's tempting to begin to subtly start thinking of people who are different and distant as enemies. And we need not do that. Because God has a habit of bringing enemies together and not just letting them coexist in the same world, but actually dropping them into the same family and giving them a single father. And so we're not law-keeping, but we are believing. We are looking forward to God doing marvelous, wonderful things. Here's the second thing that this means for us. We're not individualistic, but collective. And so remember... Paul is looking at his Jewish brothers and sisters, and he's saying, hey, you guys are thinking way too much in terms of a single people, as in just the Jewish people. Paul says, by faith, God is also bringing in the Gentiles together. And if Paul's hearers had a problem with thinking too narrowly in terms of a people, we have an even worse problem, I think, and it's in thinking strictly in terms of the individual. And so how many times do you hear people ask questions like this or ask questions like this yourself? Where are you going when you die? Is Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? How's your, you, individual, as an individual, how is your walk with the Lord? Discipleship is seen as something that's a one-on-one -on -one relationship, almost exclusively sometimes. And we think of growing in, in grace as sitting down by ourselves, maybe beside a window with a cup of coffee in hand on a quiet morning, reading the Bible alone. That's All of that's fine and good, but notice where the emphasis tends to lie. We tend to put the emphasis on the individual, whereas Paul is again and again putting the emphasis not on the individual, but on the people. So notice those questions don't tend to pop up in Paul. He doesn't walk around asking people, is Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? As if you get to decide who Jesus is or isn't. Jesus is the Lord of the heavens and the earth. Paul is far more concerned. Throughout the Bible, God is far more concerned with God and his people. The question is, do you belong to that people. 
Are you Abraham's son or daughter? Because your identity isn't something that you nail down all on your own, like our culture tends to think. Right? We tend to think of identity as something that we have to go inside ourselves to go find, and once we find it, we better not let anybody else tell us that's not the way it is. That's, that's not the way that Christianity works. That's not the way that the Bible has always worked and that God's people have always worked. We find ourselves not by going within, but by coming together before Jesus. And so we're not to be a people who are individualistic, but collective. We are a togethered people. You'll notice, in, uh, Paul says this in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, Here's, here's a chain of logic for you. If you're Christ's, he says, then you are Abraham's. And if you are Abraham's, then you are heirs according to the promise. If you want to be an heir of the promise, you need to belong to Abraham and his family. And if you belong to Abraham and his family, then you naturally then belong to Jesus. But we tend to like to flip that, and we want to have the promise and not belong. Right? But if we're going to follow Jesus, if we are going to be heirs of the promise, we are to be a people who live life together, whose identity is formed and forged alongside our brothers and sisters. And so Paul teaches us that faith is what justifies us, not circumcision, that this gloriously means Gentiles and Jews come together in a single family, and this means we need to be a believing people who put the emphasis not on the individual, but on the collective. Let me pray for us.